You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. The Podcast Playground. Welcome. You've arrived at the Taken a Walk podcast, where host Buzz Knight explores music history with industry insiders. This podcast can be found at Apple, Spotify, iHeart, the Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, Buzz talks with record producer extraordinaire Jack Douglas. Jack is a legend who has worked with John Lennon, Aerosmith, Cheap Trick, and so many others. Enjoy Jack Douglas on Taking a Walk. Well, Jack, how did you first know that uh, music had sunk its meat hooks into you and would never let go? I guess when I was uh, about four or five years old, you know, my parents, they listened to a lot of music. They weren't musical themselves, but they listened to it. So there was always a ton of music in my house in the Bronx in our apartment. Um I was uh, I was totally into you know getting like you know listening to how much is that doggy in the window and I also loved like I mean these are seventy eights I'm talking about I also loved like all of the story books that came out like Bugs Bunny or or uh, Stephen and Tyler and I talked about this we had the same collection of uh, uh, the tortoise and the hare and um, Bozo Under the Sea, that was a favorite of both of ours. 
So I was into music and storytelling at a very early age. And um, my dad, uh, who worked in a freight yard in, the, in Hunts Point in the Bronx, he decided that because they had a nice console in the living room that they listened to their music on. My dad listened to opera, and my mom listened to what was then called race music, uh, basically uh, blues and R&B. And uh, so it was a good contrast. Plus, you know, the pop stuff that was on the radio at the time, Big Band and, and uh, Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra and all those folks. But uh, my dad got a, he got a hint that a, uh, a train was coming in and on the, one of the trains coming in from Chicago was uh, a bunch of electronic equipment. And so, you know, they pilfered regularly. I mean, that was like part of the perks of working in a freight yard. And he decided that he was going to get me my own record player so that I could stop putting these records on their console in the, in the living room. And, uh, and so he went in the middle of the night and he got, uh, he saw a web core of Chicago on a box said record. He figured it said record players who stashed it. And, and he brought it home for my birthday. I think it was maybe I was six or seven, somewhere in there. You know, I don't, and anyway, he put it under my bed and then came in to wish me happy birthday. And he said, present under your bed. And I looked under and I pulled it out and unwrapped it. And both my father and I were like, what the hell is this? It was a tape recorder. It wasn't, um, it wasn't a record player. It was a tape recorder, uh, a web core, a small one. Uh, and, and we got, uh, and we read the instruction manual and we, we went down to canal street and bought a bunch of tape and, and I started uh, recording TV themes, which I really loved off the television. Uh, there were all these great themes. I love Lucy and Abbott. You know, I, I remember every one of them so well. The Abbott and Costello and the, uh, I mean, all these shows. But they're, they're, they're still going in my head. Highway Patrol, Dragnet. And I would record these themes and, and listen to them. But I knew I was definitely in the music. Also, uh, also, the uh, the thing that I noticed and my parents noticed, too, is that they would take me to see movies that were way over my head because I was a kid. But you went to the movies on a regular basis back in those days. And I could come out of the theater and sing the the main themes to the movies, the melody lines in the right key as well. So they kind of knew something was going on. And I would uh, I would record street sounds that hang the. We lived near a, an elevated subway, and I would record the train going by and uh, feedback and all kinds of weirdness. I like to stick the the uh, microphone down my mom's old vacuum cleaner tube and record th those sounds, and then uh, and then listen to them back at at the slower speed. And my dad once, uh, he said to me, I, I had had these funky mono headphones on, you know, for like a radio. Anyway, he said to me, what are you listening to one day? And I said, oh, I, I'm making my own music, Dad. He said, oh, let me listen. I was listening pretty loud. And he put them on. It was the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and he threw it, threw it down. He said, he said, that's not music. I said, it is to me. That's music to me. And so um, 
he figured I've got this music thing going on and maybe a month or so later apparently a a, a silver tone a sears acoustic acoustic guitar fell off a freight car and and he gave it to me along with a mel bay chord book and he said now you can make music and um, and i learned how to play and so i was in it from uh, real early and uh, studied music in high school went to a a high school that specialized in arts and science, studied theory and composition, and ended up playing in rock bands, and I was off and running. You actually played in uh, a folk uh, band uh, associated with Bobby Kennedy in 64. Tell me about that. I, I was writing his um, campaign songs when he was running for the Senate. I mean, that was just an oddball thing. I was, you know, I was, I was really young, 15 or 16. And I was doing the thing in the village, you know, where you busk in the street, or if you could get into a place where you didn't have to be over 18. So 18 was the drinking age. Um, I would get in and play for whatever, you know, basically uh, traditional folk songs, singing them in the, uh, this guy came up to me and and he said, hey, you, you write songs, too? And I said, yes. And he said, uh, how'd you like a job for the summer? Oh, by the way, this particular guy came to a Young Democrats meeting that I was playing at. It was like, you know, at near NYU. So I said, how much does it pay this summer job? And he said, well, it doesn't pay anything, really, but... Um, you get to travel a bit and you'll eat and you'll have some fun. Well, that was, uh, you know, playing these rallies for, for JFK. I, I actually ended up playing the last one at Madison Square Garden following the Ronettes. So, uh, you know, one of my claims to fame is I played at the garden, <laughs> the old garden. <laughs> but it, and that was, I think that was the Democratic National Convention that was held that year. That was, a, that was a good start for me. Uh, and I learned a lot about uh, politics and turning traditional folk songs into campaign songs. You've masterly figured out the art of uh, collaboration. Uh, did you learn that when you went to the, the Institute of, of Audio uh, Research there? No, 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 no. Not, not at all. Um, collaboration... Um, began as soon as I got my own rock band together. You know, it was not going to be that. I made sure that the people who were in the band were were real contributors, real creative, even though we were young. These were guys that had, most of them a little older than me, but they all had good ideas. And and uh, and then I went on the road. For, after I came back from Liverpool, I, I went on the road for years and played with a ton of people uh, from the Angels, my boyfriend, and I would play either guitar or bass, um, play with Chuck Berry for a while. Uh, you know, I toured. I was I was on uh, three different major labels, um, Columbia, Epic, and Bell, as a writer and as an artist. The last label that I was on was the uh, was uh, Teaneck, and my band was being produced by the Isley Brothers. And uh, after that is where I made the decision to to go 
to the other side of the glass and and en- enrolled in the Institute of Audio Research and also got a job at Record Plan as the janitor. They they both happened around the, the exact same time. As my day job, I was a motorcycle messenger in Manhattan. I was living in the East Village. But that paid great money because I would I would ride that bike all through winter. And it meant that the nights um, I could I could gig with the band. So it was, you know, all I had to do was call up and say uh, the dispatcher and say, I'm on. And I had this Norton Commando. And in the winter, I'd have knobby wheels on it so I could get around in the snow. And in the winter, it paid great money. So it was like really cool. But when you became the janitor, you must have had your sights on becoming a recording engineer. Well, I, I did. Uh, in fact, I wanted to be a producer as well and um, and a composer. And the funny thing was, while I was the janitor at night, uh, I was a, also a client because I was scoring the original ABC after school specials um, for for the producer, Danny Wilson. And um, so Danny's still active. That's great. But I I went to work producing music for his show, which was the was called Over Seven, and it was the original ABC after school specials. And so I at night I would be a client, and um, in the daytime I was the janitor. But I was, you know, I would beg uh, other engineers if I could just sit in on their sessions, so I could learn between. And I worked my way up from general worker, actually, after janitor, you just cart and stuff around. And uh, and Record Plant also ran a school for us, you know, guys that were on the way up. So I learned a lot there, and uh, I became a tape librarian, and I went into the editing booth. I was an editor. Then I was an assistant engineer doing tons of stuff, you know, working with great rock bands that were coming through Record Plant. And also early mornings, I was doing jingles for the Ford and airlines and you know all those big commercials when you had the big orchestra dates and rhythm section. And I was also uh, doing artist demos. So I, I did all of Billy Joel's demos for him to get his deal at Columbia. I did Patti LaBelle demos. And these were four track. So they would want to come in and listen to what it sounded like before they went in and invested in the big rooms to to do it. And uh, that's a great learning experience when you have to record all this stuff for track, especially if you've got a big rhythm section. That's, you know, I was in a hurry. It didn't take me long, honestly. They would let me, at midnight, they would let me come in and record whoever I wanted for free you know, like local bands. And, you know, I really made my bones by bringing in groups and and recording them and learning how to do it right. What a fascinating time it must have been in that area. It's still a fascinating area, that whole, the whole scene. Um, and since this podcast is called Taking a Walk, um, I have to ask you, even though we're virtual, so did you ever get sort of in a, creative block where things were kind of jammed up and would you just go for a walk in the village to free your mind no (laughs) no i didn't have time for that at all um uh no if i had a block i had to work it out while i was at behind the board but i mean i made some terrible blunders uh uh 
I was recording uh, Patti LaBelle's demos and the and a guy put a spill, these old boards, especially the four track boards were all tubes and they had giant transformers and the bass player. And I thought, man, I'm doing this. This demo sounds so good because there's a full rhythm section. And and her and, you know, I and I said, and you have to do everything live. You have to do your, your reverb or your compression. Everything has to be done on the fly right away because there's no going back to it. And so um, I'm doing this and I'm thinking, wow, I, I, I'm really good here. And the bass player came in. I couldn't wait to play it for Patty because I thought she's not even going to have to do a master. This is it. Oh. And the bass player came around behind me and he put his beer next to me. I didn't see it in the remote for the tape machine. It was in between me and the remote for the tape machine. And I went to hit the remote and hit the beer and the beer went into the transformers and flames shot out. And literally I burned the board down. The flames were coming out of the faders. I destroyed the room the, the board was gone. And uh, I got fired immediately. The owner, Chris Stone came and said, you're fired. Patty LaBelle, went to him and said it wasn't his fault at all. And Roy Sakala, who was the chief engineer, quite famous guy, he was my mentor. Uh, he said to Chris Stone, he said, why don't we listen to the tape? And because the tape was still there, he said, let's listen to the tape because if it's good, he'll make more money for the studio than that board cost, which was on its way out anyway. They listened to the tape and... The next day, Chris Stone called me up. I was like, oh, my career's over. How can I do this? This is terrible. Chris Stone called me up and he said, well, we've decided to give you another chance. And, uh, and he said, but we're going to give you a pay cut from $65 a week to $60 a week. I said, fine. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I got, but, you know, there you, you trip along the way for sure, you know. But yeah, I never had time to go. Uh, I mean, for me, I was on the course that I wanted to be on. I was learning by working as an assistant, working on projects that had either lousy producers or really good ones. And I would be taking notes on this works, this doesn't work. And I was an assistant on American Pie, and, and I watched how all these bits and pieces of that song were edited together to make that masterpiece. Now that, that works. So, I mean, I worked with a lot of, a lot of producers along the way as both an assistant and then as an engineer, which I became like the rock guy, probably because I played uh, music rock for so long, but um, those notes really helped me with understanding what worked with an artist and what didn't. So as you were in that uh, recording, you know, engineer mode there, I wanted to get your uh, reaction to some folks that you worked with that were pretty amazing. I'm going to start with Miles Davis. Well, I, I was, uh, I mean, first of all, he was great in the studio. Not, not at all. Be treated everybody great. The fellow musicians, the, the, the crew, um, mostly I, I assisted on those sessions. I assisted on Miles. I assisted on Nina Simone because Jay Messina 
was the jazz guy. And Jay would always bring me in to do these jazz dates, Mike Maneri, the Brecker Brothers. And so um, I got to, you know, like be working uh, hand in hand with him on these great sessions, but I was, you know, I was a giant miles fan, and a John Coltrane fan. And, and I was, you know, I didn't know what to expect. You know, you, you always hear miles turns his back on you and miles is, you know, miles was the sweetest guy in the studio because he understood that in the studio, probably unlike a live performance, that is a collaborative situation and the crew is important. And so, he was just uh, really sweet, and he loved Jay Messina because they wore the same shoe size. <laughs> and and Jay would always come in with like a really cool pair of shoes, and and Miles would say, "Jay, hey Jay, I can't do his voice." But he, he would ask Jay to pick him up a pair of those shoes when he was at the store, and Jay would deliver him over to the, his his uh, brownstone on the west side near where Jay lived. But he was great. Nina Simone scared me uh, working with Nina. I would be, you know, putting a, setting a mic in, in her pew because she'd be singing and playing piano. And she'd just look at me like, are you sure that's in the right place? And she'd give me a real dirty look. And I'd go, well, I think it is. <laughs> it's a fun stuff. Um, who else? James Gang. Again, I was assisting on James Gang's um, uh, sessions. Um they were brothers. They brought the mother in one time. I guess they were from Indiana or someplace like that. Um, the funny thing is, you know, I recently I've become really good friends with, well, in the last few years, with Joe Walsh when I'm out in L.A. Uh, I see him quite often because um, he works with Ringo, and I see Ringo quite often. I got to talking to him, and I said, you remember that album that had to – you were doing that record plant, James Gang, and he said, "Sure." I said, "I was the I was the other engineer," and he said, "You gotta be shitting me!" <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I said, "Yeah, that was me," and that was uh, Bill Simzik was engineer producer. I guess Bill went on to work with the Eagles. In fact, he invited me down to uh, Miami to listen to when he had this motel that he had converted in Coconut Grove uh, into a studio. Um, he can't he invited me down to listen to what he was doing we, uh, yeah that was fun and uh, those guys were very cool and very professional in the studio another one that i love to mention is the one and only alice cooper well uh that that was a uh, pretty cool because I, I loved working with bob ezrin um bob was a he was a funny cat he was and he is extremely talented musician and arranger and writer and um he was a guy that i learned both pro and con from um because he had a he had a, a, a his talent was so supreme that his ideas were always good but there was never uh, a lot of room for the for the band in particular alice's band their ideas it was like Bob laid down the law and that's how you did it. And they were used to that working with him. And so I thought, no, I don't think I can ever, ever do it that way. But, um, and you know, I'm not as talented as Bob, but I can work around it. But, but Alice sessions were great. And I worked on uh, schools out and billion dollar babies with Bob. And then, um, 
after doing the Dolls album, the first album, Bob came to me and he said, you know, you're because Todd didn't show up very much. And I had a good relationship with the, with the band. We would we would keep that going. And Bob told me, he said, you know, you're you're producing this now as well. You should be producing. And so I'm going to give you the next uh, Alice album to produce because it's the it's the last group album. And then Alice is going solo with me. And he said, I don't like funerals. And so you're going to produce it, which uh, which was muscle of love. They put uh, Jack Richardson in there with me, too, to keep an eye on me. And what would bring your first encounter with Cheap Trick? I, that was, uh, I had relatives in Waukesha, Wisconsin. My brother-in-law, he said to me, you've got to come see this band that's playing at the Sunset Bowl, Bowling Alley in Waukesha. They're really good. And I thought, God, my brother-in-law's taste in music is just terrible. But what the hell, I got nothing else to do. So we went to the bowling alley and Cheap Trick was playing. And they were, I mean, they knocked they knocked me out. They were incredible. Um, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I had known about them because they were already making noise, not signed, but already making noise around the Midwest. I told them that I, right then and there. I said, I, I, I think I can get you a deal and I'd like to produce you. And they said, okay, so the next day I called up uh, my pal at Epic Records and said, get out here and see this band. And if you don't sign them, I'll take them to RCA. And because my reputation with CBS Records, which was Columbia and Epic, because my relationship was good good with them, he, he came out and, uh, and they were signed shortly after the Epic Records. And shortly after that, I was out there, we did a a quick pre-production mostly they had so much material it was crazy insane amount of material it was just a matter of making sure it was recordable edited a little bit here and there you know it wasn't like i had to do any co-writing with them at all they they were really self-contained in that department i didn't do very much arranging except maybe on the overdubs on things like mando cello or I mean, we knocked off, I think, 30 basic tracks in two weeks when we went into record play. And, uh, and then, I, you know, I said, well, these, these songs will put on the back burner because I don't think they quite fit on this album, which the first album is a lot of social and political statements in it. I thought we're going to go to college radio with this and we'll put these other ones on the back burner. I love Go-Go Girls. I want you to want me surrender we'll put those on the back burner for the next record uh unfortunately the next record i was doing aerosmith to draw the line that took a year to do so i never got to the to the second album i wish i had and i didn't get back to them until budokan but uh that proved to be a pretty good 15 million records and still going, still selling tell me about your encounter with the who well the Who were coming in to do, uh, I think it was called the Lighthouse Project, something like that. And it wasn't Who's Next, but it was the material that was going to make up Who's Next. And um, uh, so they wanted to record all this material. And the and they said, give us your chief engineer. They were gigging around the Northeast at the time. 
uh, but give us your chief engineer. And so the chief engineer was a guy named Jack Adams. And he was not a rock engineer, but he was the chief engineer. He was an R&B guy, and he didn't like rock music very much at all. And so um, knowing that, they put me on the date to assist him. Um, and so I see, you know, I, the equipment came into the into the room. He all Keith's drums, and I set up like I was setting up for a big rock date, like Mountain or you know, one of those kind of dates where it's going to be heavy and loud, and um, individually mic'd all the tom toms and stuff that Jack normally would do because an R and B session is very different. And then the band came in, and um, and I said, let's, Jack Adams wasn't there yet. And I said, you guys want to roll something so I can get the, the room totally set up? And I'm like, sure. And so uh, I rolled tape, and they started jamming. And they started jamming on, baby, don't do it. Don't break your heart. And I said to him, hey, do you mind if I get a friend of mine to come in and jam with you guys? It was Leslie West, who was in the next room. And, and so they said, no, we love Leslie West. So I went and I got uh, Leslie and um, and he came in and he jammed. I think that particular jam session is available. Leslie West and The Who playing uh, Baby Don't Do It. Recorded, it sounded really good. Sounded like The Who. I got it all tuned up. Um, uh, Jack came into the room finally. Uh, I, I love Jack Adams. I, he was a fabulous R&B guy and, and later disco too he did uh, but he came into the room and he said oh what is this and I said you know it's the who he's like who what who I'm like the last album Jack was Tommy it was unbelievable huge uh, <laughs> wasn't into it that much they came into the into the booth and they said let's hear that back what we just jammed so we know what it sounds like so um Got to spun the tape backwards and um, and they they listened to it and and Pete went over and cranked it. Now the big Westlake monitors in that room, you know, five hundred watts on each side. It was fabulous sound. He he cranked the monitors right up loud, and I could see that Jack was very Jack. I was very uncomfortable with that, and he was like, "Oh my God, no, yeah." And then they went back out in the room and um, Jack said to me, I can't, I can't do this. Uh, Kit Lambert was producing, by the way, it was a crazy maniac, but I loved, I loved watching him. I learned a lot because he would conduct the band like it was an orchestra because his father was a very famous conductor in England. So um, Jack said to me, I can't do this. This is, this is awful. There's no groove. There's no soul. So I said, well, you know, you'll get through it, Jack. Don't worry. He said, no, I'm not going to get through it at all. You're going to get through it. Huh? He said, yeah. He goes, I want you to go into the production room, which was basically in the control room. There was a wall separating it. He said, call me up on the phone at the, at the board and tell me something terrible has happened that I will have to leave. I said, why don't you just tell them something? He goes, no, I need to, re to react to this. So Jack Adams lived on a houseboat and, and at the 79th Street Pier, Hudson River. 
So I called them up and I was really quiet because you could hear me in the room if you cared to listen. And the phone rang and Jack picked up. I said, Jack? He said, yeah. He said, I have something really terrible to tell you. Now, Pete Townsend was still in the room. And and Jack kind of was obvious and he was loud. And he went, something terrible? What happened? Now, Pete and Keith are looking at him. And I say to Jack, your houseboat's on fire and it's sinking in the Hudson River. And then he repeated that. My houseboat's on fire and it's stinking. And, uh, and then he kind of put in, like in quotations, I live in a houseboat. And then he said, my dog. He didn't have a dog, but he threw that in for a little extra stuff. I have to go. The other engineer will take over. I took the reins. Uh, the first song that we recorded was uh, uh, Won't Get Fooled Again. Live vocals. And... Uh, it was hair raising. And we recorded, I don't know, 10 tracks. Um, at some point, the front office heard that I was in charge and uh, they were a little worried, but uh, they sent somebody down to keep an eye on me and they sent me an assistant. And it was good. I got to be really good friends with those guys. And after the gigs, they would say, this would be like one o'clock in the morning and they go, well, now we're going to go out and have some fun. Okay. You're going with us kid. Okay. So I would go out with them and we would meet at the uh, Navarro hotel, which was on central park. South. small hotel boutique hotel. They had the whole ninth floor, which was maybe eight rooms. This way it kept them away from you know regular clients. And Keith and Pete had the two front suites, which faced Central Park. Beautiful. And on the ninth floor now, this is a building that had high ceilings. And so I would go there and uh, we would meet in Pete's room and then go out to some after hours place or just, you know, they knew all these spots. I was in New Yorker. I had no idea these places existed. You know, they get a limb, a couple of limos, and off we'd go. But anyway, every night I would go up there. Keith, I mean, everybody came through the door into into Pete's suite, but Keith would open the window on his suite and and crawl across a ledge outside the building, and then open up Pete's window and climb in. This is like nine very high floors. And no one thought that was unusual except me. Everyone was, hey, Keith, what are we doing tonight? And I'd be like, oh, my God. That's a little bit. I, I saw, I ran to Pete at SIR at a rehearsal just a few years ago. He was uh, coming to a meeting and he had a girl with him that he was producing. And um, I ran into him. I said, hey, Pete. I mean, it had been years. I said, remember me? And uh, Jack, and he goes, yeah, Jack Douglas. Oh, oh yeah, wow. It's been a, a lifetime since I've seen you. And I said, yeah. yeah. And he introduced me to the artist that he was with. And he introduced me. He said, um, a thousand years ago, he said to her, we worked with Jack and made him famous. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. It's true. It's outstanding. Yeah. So then it's it's nineteen sixty excuse me, nineteen seventy one. Well sixty nine is when I went to record plant. So the, the very first project, interestingly enough, that I 
worked on as a general worker because we had to move tapes was Woodstock. Can you imagine? Wow. So the, the, the van would pull up with the tapes from the show that were recorded live. And then I would bring them to the various studios where the artists were fixing the tapes. Like you ran into Hendrix and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. all in there. It's amazing. I'm like, wow, I'm in the right place here. But yeah, go ahead. Six well, well, excuse me. 71, you would engineer Imagine. One of the engineers. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about your first of a lifetime encounter with John. You know, I, first of all, I, I was an incredible Beatles fan, had been for years. I mean, just a just short of fanatic, really loved them. I even went to Liverpool in, in 65 on a tramp steamer and, and bought Rubber Soul the week it came out that, that winter, November, December, bought it in Liverpool. Uh, I got deported for a lot of reasons, for playing in bands without a work permit, from escaping from a ship, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I made a lot of noise, and I was in all the newspapers. And even in the Mirror in London, I was stories about my uh, adventures. But I was on the front pages of the Liverpool newspapers, in particular, the Liverpool Echo, which is the big newspaper in, in Liverpool. And I got deported in chains, mind you. <laughs> really, they wouldn't take any chan- chances that I was going to escape again. And that was in 65. So now, go forward some many years, and I'm at Record Plant working. And John is down the hall in another room with everybody doing overdubs uh, and, you know, working on Imagine. Uh, He'd come over from England where they'd done a bunch of tracks, and now they were doing some more tracks and doing all the overdubs. Uh, My job, because I was a good editor, was down the hall in another small room was to edit these uh some of these tracks and prepare them for for more for multi-track because there were on eight tracks and they wanted to go to 16 track there were handwritten notes from john you know uh don't edit the masters make sure you edit the copies that you're going to make when you're going to edit here anyway i was hearing most of the album before anybody else was hearing because I was editing and transferring Uh, uh, about four or five days into this whole project. The door opens and John comes into the room. I nearly peed myself because I didn't think I would be having contact with him. I just thought I'm good enough having this gig as an editor. And he sits down. He says, okay, if I hang out in here, I'm just looking for a place that's not so noisy. I knew he was, and I figured he was trying to get away from Phil, who had a terrible reputation, Spectre, that is. And so he sat on a couch on the other side of a console. So I only could see his feet up on the glass and cigarette smoke. And I, I, I said, uh, I'm editing your stuff. And he was like, yeah, okay, thanks. You're doing a great job. He just kind of blew me off. And he sat there and smoked. And about five minutes into this process of me working quietly, I said to him, I've been to Liverpool. And his head popped up. And he said, really? He said, where are you from? And I said, I'm born and raised in New York City. So why would you want to go to Liverpool? Everybody there wants to come here, including me. And, and you know, it's 
you know, it's not a great place, not a tourist place. I said, well, I was a musician and, you know, I really wanted to swim in the Mersey. I wanted to know everything about the music scene there. And which was really cool because I got to hang in the original Cavern Club, which was amazing thing to do back then. So he looked at me and he said, well, how'd that work out? And I said, well, good and bad. I said, bad, I got deported. But good, I made a lot of noise before I did. And he looked at me and he said, were you one of the crazy Yanks that was in all the newspapers? And I said, yeah, that was me. This was me and my buddy. I talked into going with me. Yeah, another guitar player. He said, you know, we looked at this pictures of these two guys on the front page of our newspaper the week that we put out an album that should have been just us all over the front page. And here's these two, these two Yanks making all this noise in Liverpool. And I said, yeah, that was me. And he said, and in one of the pictures that was on the front page was my guitar, Les Paul Custom. He said to me, right away, he remembered that because that made an impression on them. He said to me, you still have that Les Paul? <laughs> I said, no, it's a long gone. He said, I can't believe it. Of all the places I walk into, and there's this guy I'm meeting now that was someone that, you know, we laughed about, you know, in Liverpool and did all this stuff. He said, what are you doing? I said, like I said, I'm editing your stuff. He goes, you're an engineer. I said, yes. He goes, okay, you're on the project. I said, Yoko is going to know that there's some deeper meaning in us meeting you. You know, after a session or two, he said, where do you live? And I told him, in the village. He said, we do too. We're on Bank Street. Let me give you a ride home. And then one time on the way down to the village, he said, you know any place where we can get a late bite to eat? And I said, sure, I know a million places where I can get you in a back door. And suddenly he asked me for my phone number. He called me up. He said, listen, I have to go to this party, and there's going to be all these people there. It was Abby Hoffman and that crew. He said, just come with me because I don't really know them, and you can watch my back. Started hanging with him, and we became friends. And then he said to me, listen, uh, I want you to do these Yoko records, okay? So I met with Yoko, and she said, what makes you think you can do my records? And I said to her, because I was a really an avant-garde John Cage fan and all these avant-garde jazz guys. And I said to her, because I don't care if when you play the piano, you're inside it or outside of it. And she said, that's good. That's good. And so I did just all these records with her. Sometimes John would be uh, producing them. Or he'd be sitting next to me while we did them. It was it was a, a good run with her, and because of that trust, uh, that's why I ended up producing because they both trusted me. While while I was doing the Muscle of Love album, we were out, out in L.A., which he told me to do. He said, "Come out to L.A. You can, you're a producer. You can do it wherever you want." And Warner's is in L.A., so bring it out there. I'm out there. It was his last weekend, and so. Uh, I became one of the original Hollywood vampires. I was doing that in Alice, too. Um, you know, I, I, frequently I drove the getaway car. That was my gig, get them out of trouble. Interesting. And and um, I had a long, long relationship with him. I miss him. And I think the world is uh, would be a different place had he lived. If you could describe his creative process, what would it be? He worked on songs for months, if not years. He had a germ. He would work on it. And, and uh, 
you know, when you see that film, he brought the he brought the, the Jackson film. He brought stuff to the studio to, to work on. Here's something I have. He always was preparing. He was always writing. I mean, some of the songs on Double Fantasy were years old that he had demoed numbers of times. And so um, he was well prepared. The thing that he, he had no patience for lollygagging in the studio, um, you know, which is why he hated Phil. Phil would want, you know, 50 takes. Where, whereas for me, and I would always have him do live vocals, frequently within the first five takes you had it. And he knew it, and I knew it, and the musicians knew it as well. It wasn't, and I was always a step ahead of him the whole time we were working. And so he he loved that. He he liked to be you know somebody was always prepared for him to do what he had wanted to do. And I I think that's why we got along. I, I in the last few years before he passed away, I became very good friends with Jeff Emmerich. And um, he would be over at my house for dinner. We would do mixes together. We had a lot of time. And we talked about John. And he said to me, I wish I knew the John that you talk about. Because he knew the angry John. From the, apparently, he could get very angry. And the Beatles, I, I know that alcohol didn't, uh, was, was not good for John at all. It was kind of, he would get angry. That I saw while we were in California. He was just uh, he was just amazing. That whole summer we were working on that record, and then later into the fall while we were doing uh, Walking Into Nice. You ran into these guys from uh, Boston in '74 named Aerosmith. How many uh, how many years were shaved off of your life from uh, beginning that ride with them? Ten years. Ten years were shaved off my life. Not those years, but later years. <laughs> I mean, I'm 30 years sober, but there's a there's a lot of uh, you know, as as their drug got used, years got worse. I mean, I was always like the straight guy. You know, I thought to keep this session together. When it was over, when the session was over, maybe I'd smoke a joint. Uh, when it was over. But, um, yeah, as the drug use got worse, uh, they, they exposed me to a few things that later in my life became a problem. And then, um, so, yeah, I, I lost some time, but n- none of it while I was working with them. No. How, how often did crisis management uh, enter into your job description working with them? I, it depends on what you call crisis management. Uh, you know, get your wings, toys in the attic, rocks. They were all, um, they were all really creative periods for the band and, and, and they welcomed my input so that I was like a member of the band. We did months sometimes of pre-production and, um, and it wasn't until we were doing draw the line that it became became a problem because they would stay in there. We were in a, had been a nunnery upstate New York, Westchester County, actually. And uh, they all had their own rooms and frequently uh, some of them wouldn't come out of their rooms for three, four days. That was a, that was a crisis. As far as 
working with them or having fights or not not so much. No. Um, You know, I've always been the good politician. You know, my thing is listen to the band first. First of all, you know, my job is to make a band's dreams come true, you know, not mine. And, you know, they, they understood that that's the way it was. And so, um, although we didn't have to talk about it, that's the way I approached all of that stuff with them. We worked hard together. You know, I mean, sure, Stephen would come in and say, I could sing that better. And I was saying, I don't know if you can. But if he said he could sing it better, I went with it. You co-wrote uh, Kings and Queens, didn't you? Yes. But you see, that's at the point where the band wasn't writing. I mean, I contributed a lot as a writer previous to that. But I always thought that's my job as a producer. You know, people told me many years later that was a big mistake, but I don't I don't think so. Because uh, now every producer is a writer. You know, it's like you, that's where you get your publishing and blah, 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 blah. But at that point, I had to start writing because they were losing their productivity. But I like Kings and Queens. I think it's cool. Oh, I love that one. I love that tune. That's a great one, but so many great ones. Oh, you know, being in Boston for so long and part of the Boston scene, you got a big fan of Aerosmith right here. Oh, great. Yeah, I'm still a big fan. Um, uh, the Peace Out tour should be interesting. Uh, when they were doing Vegas, uh, the residency in Vegas, my my son was in the band as a percussionist. My son Colin is a Latin jazz guy. A couple of Grammy nominations uh, as for as a jazz artist. But uh, Joe liked to work with him on his solo stuff, and so uh, when they did this residency, he wanted him to play all the tambourines and congas and bells and. So that's what he was doing. He could sing, too. So what are you working on now, Jack? Jeez. Uh, so, because I have a label? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the first act that we signed was the Detroit Youth Choir. Um, and they, of course, were huge hits on America's Got Talent twice. They were huge hits. And... Um, and so I produced that record in Detroit called uh, Rock Spell, I called it. It's a Detroit rock band with a youth choir singing classic r and It's available on our site. And then the next artist I signed was Robin Taylor Zander, who's Robin Zander's son. That album is out. Now, we just dropped acoustic an acoustic version of uh, High and Low. Although the single version of it is already out, and the whole record is available on every platform. Uh, Detroit Youth Choir won us a uh, a gospel about two weeks ago. Won us a gospel version of the Grammys for the record that we did. So that's pretty cool. And last week I was in uh, Los Angeles uh, talking with Disney because Disney has picked up the Detroit Youth Choir for a miniseries called uh, Choir. And so we have the record, and they have the the uh, the, the miniseries. So it could be a good combination. Uh, I've been doing a lot of film scores. Uh, I've got on uh, person personality crisis. I just worked with Maurice Scorsese and Ron Howard on, on uh, 
personality crisis uh, one night only, which is on Showtime now. I've got uh, two films going into the, the festival circuit that I composed the music for. Uh, one is called uh, Trust and Love, contemporary rom- rom-com, takes place in Malibu. And the other one is the Carol Dota story, which is the a documentary about the first topless dancer in San Francisco. Which is who I just last night watched um, the completed film with my score, and it. it's pretty cool. It, 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 I'm, it's amazing how much footage they have of that that period of uh, that she was, you know, what was happening in San Francisco from 1964 through the early 70s. A lot in San Francisco it was it was amazing, uh, and then. Um, I've got an artist named Ellie Lowe that is, uh, I'll be in the studio in Los Angeles with her this coming month, producing her. She's really amazing. She's out of Atlanta. And then my partner on, uh, we have two labels under one umbrella. um, I have Confidential Records, NewYorkCity.com, NY, that's ConfidentialRecordsNYC.com. It's a good good website, too. Um, And my partner under the same umbrella uh, is Make Records. And uh, he's a little bit different than me. He's signing members of, of Ghost. And he's got a group called Silver Plains. It's a little harder rock than what I usually do. Well, I produce outside acts. Uh, I have a request for some a group in England called Xander and the Pirates. I might, I may do that. I may do it. And, uh, and I today got a, a message from a guy who has, since we were speaking of the who has the license for all of this. Uh, he has all this ant whistle, uh, incomplete material that uh, the family is licensed to him to complete. So that could be interesting. I started listening to it today. You know, I, that's keeping me very busy, all of this. I mean, the label keeps me really busy and, and on the go all the time. You, you know, people said, you know, why don't you retire? What am I going to do? You know, I'm qualified to be the bag boy at Stop and Shop. Even though right, right up on the wall up there, you see him. Uh, John Jack Douglas, Doctor of Music. There it is. I got it right up there on the wall. But uh, that'll get you a bag boy job. And now there aren't any bag boy jobs because all oh, I made it and you got to pack it yourself. So I would basically be unemployed. So uh, I like what I'm doing. Yeah, I am so grateful for uh, our friend Drew Lane for connecting us uh, out of uh, Detroit. And uh, so glad that you've been on Taking a Walk. Thank you for the stories and for the music, Jack Douglas. Amazing. You're very welcome. Good to see you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store.
I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 